The following sermon is brought to you by thepreachersvault.com, bringing old-time preaching to a new generation. So Philippians chapter 1, beginning in about verse 25, and I've told you several different times how this chapter breaks down, and every time I tell you, I probably tell you something a little bit different, because every time I look at it, I see some things that are slightly different. Basically, verses 1 and 2 make up one unit, verses 3 through 11 make up yet another unit, verses 12 through 18 another Verses 19 to 26 make up a unit, which is kind of smack where we are right now. And then verse 27 of chapter 1 makes up a unit that goes approximately, and we'll talk about this more, approximately through verse 5 uh, of chapter 2. So uh, I'm sure just like me, and you use it as tools, you've got headings in your Bible. And some of those headings are simple headings that say chapter number. Uh, in this case, be chapter number one, chapter number two. Uh, you can probably in your mind, and I've physically done it in my Bible, mark through the words chapter and the number two uh, to assist you in understanding that the subject matter that's about to take part, beginning in verse 27 of chapter one, carries itself through chapter two, particularly verses one through five. But we'll get more to that when we do. Uh, beginning back over chapter 1 and verse 25. We'll read it again. And having this confidence, Paul said, I know that I shall abide and continue with you for your furtherance and joy of faith. Verse 26, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you. And so the Apostle Paul telling them, uh, very purposefully here that he wishes he could be with them in person. Now, he's not there. As a matter of fact, he's away from them. He's in a prison at this point. He's riding back. We've talked about that many, many times. Uh, Paul would enjoy being with the brethren in Philippi probably as much as any that he would encounter. Uh, if you go through and look at all the congregations that he was either to establish slash uh, go back and visit as he went through these missionary journeys and such, this was one of them that just by the nature of who they were and by the good that they had done toward him already, you can assume it would have been what you might call one of his favorite places. Uh, not that he was born and raised anywhere around Philippi or any of the outlying cities, but it was kind of a second home to him. And I'm sure many of us have had places like that. Maybe it's somewhere we visit with family. Maybe we go on uh, routine vacations to an area and it, we kind of call it our second home. I think this to Paul would have been something like that because of the love that he had for the brethren. And here he recognizes the fact in behind the context where he's already told them, verse 21, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. Verse 22, but I, if I live in the flesh, uh, if I live in the flesh, this fruit of my labor, of what I shall choose, I want not, for I am in a straight, verse 23, betwixt two. Why are you in a straight? Why are you in a tough place where you feel like you're being crushed literally there Paul says I have a desire to depart and be with Christ but it is far better in essence he says to be with you and he understands verse 24 that they need him they not only need him writing letters they need him to be in their presence and I, I can't even imagine what it would have been like and we we don't have the same access but we've certainly got uh, a greater blessing in that we've got the word now combined and put together so we can read it. But I couldn't even imagine what it would be like if you had had access 
to a physical apostle, especially one like the Apostle Paul and all the work that he did, all the writing that he did, all the way that he lived. What if we were living in the first century times and we had access to that? Wouldn't it be great for somebody to step out and, and yell and say, I see Paul. Paul's on his way. Here he comes again. He's coming through town. I think that would be exciting. And I'm sure just like we uh, theorize, I don't know that it'll be the case, but oftentimes you'll hear somebody theorize. They say, well, I can't wait to get to heaven because when I do, I'm going to ask this or I'm going to uh, say this. or ask. What about if Paul was coming to town? Not quite heaven itself, but imagine Paul coming to town. Imagine him being there to give advice, to be a, a comrade, to be someone that, and the word here is used throughout this book, uh, something that instead of someone you could fellowship with, you could put your arm around, that would be great. It would be a definite treat, but we have just as great, I think, in that we're able to read the Word of God. And so he's telling them here, I know it's needful for me to come, verse 24, but I understand, and we're going to read the words with more details, verse 25, and having this confidence, he says, I know that I shall abide and continue with you for your furtherance and of faith. Now, when we talked about the word furtherance, at least something similar to it, what do we talk about furtherance meaning? Anybody remember that? That's only been uh, probably six, eight weeks ago. Chapter 1 and verse 12. Reading chapter 1 and verse 12 again, he said, But I would that ye should understand, brethren, that the things which are written to me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. And we talked about how that word furtherance there, the Greek word at least, means nothing more or less than the idea of progress. So the gospel was being progressed or advanced, is another way of saying that, by Paul being in prison. By the same measure and by the same note here in verse 25, Paul is saying, you know what? If I could abide with you or be with you physically, that would be for your progress. It would be for your advancement. And you know, there were many times that Paul and, and Coach Stevens pretty much taught this however many quarters as they kept coming back to those separate missionary journeys. There were many times that when Paul would go back into an area in his mind before he went into the area, he thought, you know what, they need me here today because of blank. Uh, they've got some misconception. They've got some uh, mistaken ideas or they've got a practice, a, a doctrine that's floating around. And so Paul would go into these cities, and we know this by him writing all the letters that he did, including this one. When Paul would go back into these cities, or at least in this case ride back to these cities, he had in mind certain things that he knew he could help them with. Of course, he does it by inspiration, but Paul knew that he would be a benefit to those that he would encounter. And so that's something of what he says. Now, you see the word joy, the joy of faith. That is the joy that he's talking about here. And remember, the word joy is used so many different times, and we've, again, said that so many times. It's used six times. Throughout this book, the word rejoice is used 11 times throughout this book. In other words, as well, Paul knew that the joy that they would possess would be a joy that would come as a result of, you might put it that way, of their faith. Verse 26, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you. Now, when I first read across this, and I had already made the statement in my mind at least, when you read through this book, you find the Apostle Paul using one single-letter word 
over and over. What's that word? I. Over and over again, I forget how many times I counted it and I may have jotted it down. 65 times in 45 verses, the Apostle Paul says, I, 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 I. Now, if we were around someone, and I use this example, if you were around someone now on a regular basis, whether it be at work or a family member or whoever you would encounter, if the major word that came up in most of their conversations was I, what would that do to your mind? To your attitude? <laughs> you might want to just duck and run and say, you know what, I just don't have to talk to them today. I, just, I don't have the patience to deal with that person because everything they discuss or everything they mention seems to be self-centered. Now, I don't believe that at all is what this is about. One, this book is inspired to be written, so if the word I is there, if it's there in the original language, it was there inspired of God, so that clears it up without a shadow of a doubt. But even aside from that, the context of the book that's really about to springboard in the next verse, verse 27 of chapter 1 on through chapter 2 and verse 5, is all about humility. It's all about avoiding pride. It's all about putting others ahead of yourself. So I don't think that's the mindset of Paul at all. Including the fact that when Paul says here, if I come to you, that will be to verse 25, your furtherance. And if I come to you again, it will be to your rejoicing. I don't think Paul is saying that you ought to be, not that someone might do it. Paul's not encouraging them to be out in the streets cheering for him as he comes into town. Or throwing a, a, a welcome home party if he comes into town. Although, again, I think that would be an exciting moment physically to do that. As a matter of fact, Paul right here in this context is using some language, which I don't necessarily completely understand. But he's using some language here that implies that he knows they would have, and this is the word rejoicing right here. It's a word that means a proud confidence a proud confidence now it's a little bit different from the other words joy and rejoicing that we see it's a little bit different usage a little bit different meaning maybe the idea is that if paul comes to town and he's sort of kind of said this in the previous verse anyway verse 25 but in verse 26 it's sort of kind of like he's saying is if i come to town you can have more confidence now, that's not a contradiction to what we read a moment ago about the word further from chapter 1 and verse 13, or I'm sorry, chapter 1 and verse 12, where Paul said, look, look, you can have confidence and the gospel can be furthered or advanced by me being in prison. That's still true. But also, if I were to come to you, if I were to be in your presence, you could have confidence in that. And again, I think that would give us some confidence. You know, what if we were in a situation, and by the way, they are. Chapter 2 will prove this. But what if we were in a situation as a local congregation, so instead of the church that meets in Philippi or, or Macedonia, uh, it were the church that meets at Mumford, where we are in conflict, not only among ourselves, but even most, more importantly, we're in conflict with those around us. Maybe there are people who are considering themselves religious quote-unquote religious who are considering themselves quote-unquote Christians and they're coming to the members of the Mumford Church of Christ maybe during assembly and we're being questioned we're being accused we're being attacked we're being you know thrown on the bus whatever terms you want to put with that 
And, and maybe we're struggling because the church at Philippi was struggling to an extent with that, that type of thing. We would call them Judaizers. We'll talk about that later. What if we were in a position similar to that and then we look up and Paul come in the door? Paul walks in and suddenly you go from kind of, you know, cowering or being timid to saying, well, hold on just a minute. Let me turn the discussion over to the apostle Paul. He happens to be here. Proud confidence. Where he says in 25, uh, the fervent and the joy of faith, if we think about the joy of faith, think about the word faith, well, where does faith come? It comes from God's word. Right. And so when he would come to them, he would bring God's word to them. They didn't have the Bible like we got. Now, they had some inspired people to some extent that, that were inspired to speak, but they didn't have the Bible like we got it, where you could show it to everybody chapter and verse. That's right. But they could show Paul, who they everybody knew was inspired, as chapter and verse. Right, and as, as we didn't... God's Word. Right, exactly. As he was saying, Paul brings with him, he brings God's Word, and that Word of God is able to continue to build their faith, therefore building their confidence in their rejoicing of that same faith. So that's through verse 26, basically, me coming again. Now, verse 27, I've probably said this one, two, three, four times. Verse 27, about through about verse 5 of chapter 2, make up one literary unit. You say, what is a literary unit? We might say paragraph. It means one subject is being picked up on and that subject carries itself up into a point where it either shifts or stops. Now in this case, I think it just shifts. I don't think when Paul gets to verse 6, he gets down to chapter 2, verse 5, and then when he transitions to verse 6, he just stops and throws up his hands and goes to an entirely different uh, back-opposite discussion of anything he's discussed prior to this. That's not the case here. He shifts, however. He shifts from the, uh, and what he's going to be talking about is the unity and the sincerity and the um, humility that they need to have as people. That's the brunt of chapter 1, verse 27, through chapter 2, verse 5. Then in chapter 2, verse 6, beginning, he brings all that back up having shifted from their humility to proving the case is possible by presenting Christ's humility and humanity, as a matter of fact, in that. And that's kind of where we're very familiar when you get in chapter 2 and verse 5. Let this mind be in you which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robber to be equal to God, that such thing. That's where we're working toward but to get to that, to the, get to the discussion of Christ, chapter 2, verse 6, beginning, you've got to get through chapter uh, 127 through 2, 5, which is the discussion of our humility. So he tells us, verse 27, he says, Only let your conversation, many of you are looking at words other than that, we'll mention it. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you, or else be absent, that I may hear of your affairs, and that ye may stand fast, 
in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, I won't go through my discussion, but what do you see? What character, what notation do you see right behind the word gospel at the end of verse 27? Period? Semicolon. Semicolon. Continuing of the discussion. That's our assistant to remind us of that. So there's more to it. Now, backing up right here, beginning of verse 27. Again, other translations say some different things. All coming down to the same, th- same idea, I believe. But when you begin this, this sentence, this paragraph, with Paul through inspiration saying, Only let your conversation be as it becometh. What does the word let mean to us? L-E-T, let. Allow. That's sort of kind of the way we would, we would use it. It's not wrong to even look at this in that way because to an extent, we, even though we are being governed by God, we're being controlled by who? We're being governed by God but controlled by ourselves. And so to an extent, yes, we have to let uh, whatever it is. In this case, it'll be our lifestyle. It'll be our way of living. It'll be our conversation. We've got to stop and take what God has said, and not just on any subject, but every subject. Stop and take what God has said on the certain subject and decide, okay, this is what God has stated. This is what God has commanded. This is what God has ordained. This is what God has allowed. This is what God has judged. And then question ourselves as to say, will I do it? Will I obey God? That's a daily, uh, an hourly, a momentary question. Every day in us. But the word that Paul uses here, and he'll use similar language in in the next few verses, as a matter of fact, doesn't take away the idea that we have to make that decision, but Paul doesn't state this like we have a choice. In order to be a Christian, go all the way back in your minds to chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul says... Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints of Christ Jesus, or in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, when he mentions the folks that were there who were the saints in Christ Jesus, he in essence is saying to the Christians, to those of you who claim to be Christians, who live to be saints, who are like he was in Timotheus, servants or enslaved to Jesus Christ, from verse 1, chapter 1, from that point on, anything he says is not a matter of conjecture. It's not a matter of option. It's not a matter of opinion. It's simply matters of, uh, of obligation. And you can pretty much apply that in the New Testament for all of us. Not option, not opinion, but obligation. And so when Paul gets to where he says what he does here in chapter 1 and verse 27, so let your conversation, let the way you live be whatever he's about to mention, they don't really have a choice. Now you can choose, but the choosing to live a self-centered life or a vain life or an evil life, or an immoral life, is not a choice between a good life or a bad life. It's a choice between a Christian life or a a non-Christian life. Really, the divide is there. 
if I convince myself that I'm not going to live God's way anymore, guess what I've convinced myself of? I'm not interested in being a follower of God, a follower of Christ. I'm not interested in being a Christian. Now, is that to say that every Christian will be and can be and should be sinlessly perfect? Do you do this right here? No, that's not what the, I'm trying to imply. But the thing is, when we give up on the commands of God and when we give up, when I give up on the law of God, I'm not just giving up and saying, well, God, I don't like the way you uh, instructed me to do this or I don't like the way you, you commanded me to do that. I'm essentially saying, God, I don't like what you stand for to begin with. And we turn our backs. Paul is saying, in a sense, to them, verse 27, this is a must. As a matter of fact, in, in the original language, the word that he used implies that this has to be the case. Now again, for someone who doesn't desire to live godly, who doesn't desire to live after God's ways, that may very well not be the case. But for Christians, it should be, and it, it's obligated to be. You say, what are we talking about? We're talking about the next few words. Only let... Your conversation, this is a command, remember, only let your conversation be as it becometh of the gospel of Christ. What does the word conversation mean? Doesn't mean we know it doesn't mean uh, verbalizing. We oftentimes would, would put in place of that for understanding a manner of life. King James translation says conversation. Uh, American standards, that what you said, says manner of life. It's a standard of living, in essence, basically. The word literally means the practicing of living. Let the way that I live my life be that which becometh, or you might put in place the word becometh, looks the same as the gospel of Christ. So I have to live my life. And again, chapter 2 just expounds on this completely and, and fully. But I've got to start in my life, living my life as Christ lived his. Yes, sir. Exactly right. Balancing our lives against the Bible. Balancing our lives against the life of Christ. So he says, Let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you, or else I be absent, that I may hear of your affairs, that you do several things. Number one, he says, Stand fast in one spirit with one mind. Number two, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Now, Paul, again, has been talking about the potential and the possibility of being with them physically, of being able to come to them, the benefit and the furtherance, the advancement that would be available if he came to them, the rejoicing that they might have, the confidence that they might gain by him being with them. And then he stops right here and says, pretty much, let's, let's, put, it, let's put it in uh, take it out of the inspired word of God. Take it out of the words of Paul or the mind of Paul. Put it in Jim Merle, Munford, Alabama. Paul says it doesn't matter if I'm there or not. You've got to act right. Now who have we ever told that to before? 
every child or grandchild or employee. For me, it applies, and I mean, I've got five children and, and trying to get three of the five started and trying to finish out one of the two top ones. Uh, that almost pales in comparison to when I was in supervision in the cabinet business, the employee thing. Because most of the employees I had worked really, really good when I was there. But some, <laughs> you better not turn the corner. And I used to tell one old boy, I said, you work harder trying to get out of work than you ever would if you worked. But I've seen him, he has been injured on the job trying to run from the back room of the maintenance shop to get back on his job because he heard me coming. Tripped and fell and had to go to the emergency room because he was running to get back to his The Christian life can't operate that way. It can't be, and of course we know God is all-knowing and he sees it all, and you know we can go through that in our mind, but nonetheless, still in my life I can say there are times when you just, you just want to put that aside and put that out of your mind and think, well, you know what, I can, I can do this. I can do this right now. I mean, I can get by with this. Or I can, I can not do that. And, and you know, it'll, it'll all work out in the wash. And Paul knew these brethren were struggling. And apparently some of the things they were struggling with were coming from the inside. The outside's coming in the second chapter. But were coming from the inside and pertain to the fact of what they were unwilling to do without, you might say, him holding their hand. And again, him holding their hand, whatever you want to consider that, that would have been a benefit. But the fact is it can't always happen. And we, we sometimes illustrate that again to our children too. You know, you, you're going to have to learn to do this because I'm not always going to be you know, here to do that. Or I won't always be able to do it for you. Paul understood such. Again, he says, whether I am with you or I am absent, that I may hear of your affairs, that ye, number one, stand fast. So they can't, they don't need to at least. They shouldn't, we shouldn't. They shouldn't begin to, to weaken or to fail because Paul wasn't around. But did Paul, well, how do I word this? I need to take it away from Paul. How did the other apostles, Paul was excluded from this one. You know, Paul, sometimes you're not guilty because you really weren't there. So put Paul out. How did the other apostles handle Jesus on the night of his crucifixion? How did they handle that? As soon as Jesus got out of sight, what happened to them? Basically, for the most part, what we know, they fell apart. Only a only couple of them got that we can find in Scripture got within view of him and even really witnessed all that was going on, Peter and John. Some of the others didn't get that near to it, this situation, so they may have stayed farther apart. That's right. They, they, they just weren't, you know, when he got out of their presence, and this didn't happen then, it happened a couple different times when Jesus went out on the water and left them on the banks, you know, when he had to come walk into them because they were so upset and calmed the storm. A lot of great miracles come out of it and a lot of lessons learned, but it had been a, it had been a thing. 
It had been a, a, a constant thing, even with Jesus, that when he wasn't present with those disciples, it became more difficult for them to stand fast. Matter of fact, to take it back to that night of the cru- or night before the crucifixion, what happened completely to Peter and at least his professed faith that night? He denied him. Uh, he began according to Scripture, and I've looked it up and up, and I don't know the words he used. If I knew them, I wouldn't, wouldn't repeat them out loud, but it's, he began to curse and swear. Basically, so somebody sort of, uh, I don't know if, I, know, I don't know. This is, this is conjecture. This is my opinion. Basically, so that somebody would say, well, I thought he was with Jesus, but man, the mouth he's got on him, he couldn't have been with Jesus. Them words come out, that's what he said. He wanted to separate himself from that. And their faith would remain faltered for some time. In John's record, all the way into chapter 21, when they're laying there beside the bank and getting ready to go fishing again, because in their minds, they've assumed Christ, maybe he's just, he's just up and gone. He ain't coming back. We've seen him twice, but he ain't coming this time. Right. So it's something to be said about being out of the presence of God and, and, you know, our faith taking a hit. Now, for us today, how many of us have spent the night, you know, sitting around a campfire with Jesus? You know, how many of us have seen firsthand with our own eyes His miracles? Okay, so we've got a different perspective. But at the same time, we've got a constant access and reminder through his word of what he did do. But these brethren, he knew that it was possible at least that when he was out of their, out of their presence, it was possible that they would need assistance in standing fast. He says, stand fast in one spirit. Look down at your print, your translation. Does anybody have the word spirit capitalized? Mine's lowercase, at least in the King James copy that I have, at least. I don't, I don't think that it should be now. You know that oftentimes the word spirit will be capitalized if the translators assumed, and they may be mistaken in assuming either way, but if they assumed it was talking about the Holy Spirit of God, we might call the Holy Ghost. If the assumption is it's the Holy Spirit of God, there are times when it is capitalized to help denote that. Here it's not capitalized. I don't know that it should be capitalized because I think it more attends itself to the spirit that they have in them, which is their human spirit. Not to take away the fact that their human spirit had been adapted and had been accustomed and, what's another word, developed by the word. By Paul's coming to them prior, by Paul's being with them, by them having in that day to some extent some people who were endowed spiritually to to teach them, even without printed copies in hand. But he says you have to stand fast in one spirit. So having the same mindset, the same heart with, and the next one is specifically that, with one mind. Paul wrote to the Corinthian brethren in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in about verse 10, and he had a lot to say specifically about what? Unity and being not divided or undivided. 
Matter of fact, one of the instructions he gives, and we'll, I don't flip or flop much, but we can turn back to that. Go back to 1 Corinthians. So turn a little bit to your left. I think it's a parallel text and at least the, the heart that they need to have. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Of course, he's writing to a different group, the Corinthians versus the Philippian brethren. But he says, 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, Now I beseech, that is beg, that's God through the words of Paul begging them. I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that is by the authority that Jesus Christ had and I, I possess, that ye all, what's he tell them? Speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that you be perfectly joined together in the same, what's the next word? Mind. Mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me by the brethren, which are them in the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. Now what's already happened? We'll go back to the book of Philippians. What's already happening with these brethren? And this right here, I'm going to tell you, I've been studying this book and, and trying to assist you in studying it for, well, I, I started studying it before I started standing here. Uh, for three, four months or more. And this hit me today. Today. We all talk about and think about, you know, if we could just get this local congregation, the one that meets at Mumford, to act and to react and to live and practice like the church of the first century, we'd have it made. And there's some definite truth to that. You see the early church, particularly you see the practice of the early church in Acts chapter 2 and what all it says about them, about having all things in common and all the, uh, how the, the, these souls were being added to the church daily. And you see that pattern, Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 30, 39 and forward through verse 47. Yeah, there's a pattern there. And that is the church of our Lord in its absolute purest infant form day of Pentecost from that day forward incrementally to an extent the church became more and more corrupt and here we've got a congregation of people I mean you could not be the, the way in which it was established 30 some odd years 62 ish AD maybe 62 to 64 ish 30-some-odd years removed from the day of Pentecost, we've got a congregation that was apparently established in person by the Apostle Paul uh, using some women who were already enormously religious and doing their best to practice whatever they knew of. New Testament Christianity already who brought in throngs of people early on and already this congregation this early on church that met in Philippi and around that area already there are questions being raised and there are encouragements that are having to be made to stand fast in one spirit and to have the same mind what does that imply Somebody wasn't standing fast and somebody didn't have the same mind. Somebody was already becoming divided. 
That's exactly right. And again, to put this letter in its time, that 62-64-ish uh, A.D.-ish time frame, how long does that come after the Jerusalem, we call it, the Jerusalem Council? Which was year what? 50. So we're talking about 14, 15 years past that. So we know we've already got issues. We've already got problems. Is that to say, well, you know, hey, oh, that's encouraging because if the church at Philippi, great as they were, if they were messed up and they were arguing and fighting and it's okay for us, not okay, but understandable. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. They didn't have one. So the, the people there, uh, you had Lydia that had the little group of women on the side of the creek bank that was, uh, and they were praying and, and they came in and established the church there because you converted Lydia and those people with her. But <clears throat> that was on the second missionary journey. He'd already gone through uh, on the first one and completed it and established elders in all those churches before he went back and finally went into Macedonia. And then from there, he went down to Corinth, mm-hmm. started, uh, set up that church, and came back through Philippi on his way back. It doesn't mention Philippi by world, by name, but you went through Macedonia, so that's the same thing. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's three trips uh, through there. Uh, well, yeah. But he, he didn't go the fourth time back to Philippi. Because you read in chapter 2 here where he's probably going to send Timothy. Right. Yes, he's going to use his, his cohorts to go back and assist them even farther. But these people, again, not taking away from them, but adding and not adding to us either, the issues already had arisen that they weren't necessarily able to all stand fast. They weren't necessarily all of the same mind. And then here's one. They weren't necessarily because he's encouraging they needed to be, striving together for the faith of the gospel. What does it mean to strive? First of all, did you say the word strive this week? Not unless you read this, you probably didn't. To strive, in literal Mumford terms, means to put up your dukes. Now, if any of our brethren in Kenya are watching, I can't explain that to you. I don't know what to tell you that means to you. But it means to be willing to fight. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean a fist fight. It doesn't mean a battle. It doesn't mean rolling around wrestling on the ground. But it carries with the idea of being willing to put yourself in harm's way. Now, that could have been physical for sure in the first century. It could be physical now, not likely as much although the days may be on the, on the horizon. But to put, your, you know, to put your character, to put your reputation, to put your, what you possess of yourselves on the line for the gospel. He says these brethren needed to strive together. They needed to get together, and they needed to get together to fight for the faith. Now, where are these words found? Very familiar verse, at least the part of it that we pull out and quote. 
earnestly contend for the faith. Where are those words? The book's about that long. It has one chapter. Starts with a J, ends with a, I don't know what it is. I can't spell it. J-U-D-E. Jude. Jude verse 3. The brethren there, or the, the, those individuals there being addressed, are being reminded, we too as we read it, to earnestly contend for the faith. You know how much that is, how different that is from this? It ain't now. He encourages them to strive together, to strive together for the gospel. Unified defense. Unified defense. That's exactly it. All right, number next, number verse next, or not verse, yeah, verse 28. And this is interesting here. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. So he wants them to be able to stand fast in one spirit, to be of one mind, to be willing to strive together on the, for the sake of the gospel, so that, and in order that, they would never, or no, that nothing of them, that never they would be, terrified by your adversaries. Does anybody like scary movies? Some people do. I found, in, at least in my uh, experience, most scary movies... Uh, at least the ones that come out on Halloween, they're not worth a flip for watching because of all the garbage that comes with them. I mean, you might want to be surprised or shocked, but you know what I'm saying. Not the best choices. But the idea is there of a sense of someone who shakes. Someone who, who shakes, we would say, shakes in their boots. And here he says, don't ever be afraid. Don't ever be terrified by your adversaries. The word terrified here comes from a Greek word which means to face a stampede of horses. I don't know that much about that. Uh, some people know more about horses than they do cattle, whatever. Andy uh, has, has some cattle, some cows. Uh... He's probably never scared in his whole life. But are you afraid if Levi gets too close to the back end of that bull? Or if one, you know, snorts and, and ducks his head, do you just say, I ain't worried about it? I, I, I wasn't around him much except for when I was a young, young boy. And my granddaddy had uh, a number of cows. And, and I always wanted to ride them and want to do this. You know, I had all the guts in the world until we got close enough, and then I even knew better. The word here, to be terrified, means if, a, if an entire stampede of horses is running at you, don't be afraid. You say, well, that literally would be stupid. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be ignorant at least. You'd have to be something. But these adversaries, 
the people that are coming against them, the people that are causing them problems, the people that are attacking specifically preceding verse, the gospel itself, the people of which they're supposed to be fighting together for the gospel. He said, don't be afraid of that. The Judaizing teachers, which we'll start mentioning on next week. Again, we've got to stop for the night, but let me, let me bring this to your mind because it just left mine and I don't know what I was fixing to say. Uh, maybe next week we'll try again. Thank you for your attention.